Welcome back to the LFDC podcast. My name is Pastor Jesse Smouth. Today's sermon is an exposition on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together freely. I will thank you immensely, even more so now than it than I used to, because it's so much closer to home that people can't do this, God. So much closer to home. I thank you for this. I pray that today this word which comes forth from your word is, uh, I, I'm just a willing vessel in which your spirit is, is ministering through, Lord God. I am with the congregation, eating up your word, your word for today, not a rhema, but a logos word, God. And I pray that we can take from the logos our personal rhema and apply it to our lives and let it transform us, renew us, and, and that we don't come into church and leave the same, but that we come into a gathering, an assembly, and we're encouraged, we're edified, we're built up, and we know something now that we didn't know before, that we can leave this place and not be the same, that we cannot be like the world, of the world, as the world, but we're in it as Christians, ministering the gospel, those with beautiful, beautiful feet. In Jesus' name, amen. So something I wanted to do, um, and I have this vision, you guys. I have a vision to one day be able to read the Bible line by line without offering much input, and you guys will just be blown away by the Word of God. When I read the Bible, understand, this isn't, this isn't about anything other than the Bible. The Bible is what God left for us. It is the written Word of God. It is, it is inspired by Him. It is perfect in every way. So we finished Ephesians chapter 1 a couple weeks ago. We took our one week off last week, which we talked about the last days. But this week, we're returning to Ephesians chapter 2. But before we do that, without stopping, it should only take three or four minutes, I want to read the entirety of Ephesians chapter 1 without stopping. And you guys can read along with me. You can even recite it with me if you want to some capacity. I am reading from the English Standard Version. So understand there's, there might be some slight hiccups. But I want to read Ephesians 1 just through and through. Just without stopping. Because one day I just have this hope, this vision, that we can read the Word of God and people will be repenting at the, the feet of Christ. That they'll be worshiping God. They'll be glorifying God. And they will just love, love, love His Word. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who, are with, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all of the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Some of you may have got bored during that. Praise God. We're just going to start reading the scriptures, and that's going to be my sermon. (laughs) Ephesians 1 is a beautiful, beautiful intro to the book of Ephesians. And what we need to understand, once again, I will remind you that Ephesians was not a need-to-know letter. It was a want-to-know letter. If Paul was put in their current context and had no issues to deal with, in the church, which there are issues to deal with, we know. He would write something like Ephesians. He'd be like, this is what I want you to know. Doctrine set to music. So we are going to read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 today, which there is a lot to unpack in this. So bear with me. I try not to speak too quickly. I understand that I've recently come to the, uh, the realization that I can speed things up when I'm listening to them myself. So I sometimes, in turn, talk very fast, because I listen to things very fast. I listen to books fast. I listen to YouTubes fast. I listen to podcasts fast. I listen to lectures fast. I listen to teachings fast. So I'm trying to slow down. But also, sometimes, I get into this, and I realize I still have seven more slides to get through, and y'all are ready for lunch. But I will try to do this passage uh, a good service today. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead. We're going to pause there for a moment because I want you to understand what you were. You were dead. Not mostly dead. Not on a deathbed waiting for a doctor dead. You were dead. You were buried, you were skin, our skin and bones gone, you were dead. You were nothing, you were lifeless, you had no breath. You're not about to die, you were dead. In him, this is Colossians 2, sorry, Colossians 2, verse 11 through 14, a cross-reference for this death that you were a part of. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, that's of the heart. The New Testament, New Covenant is a circumcision of the heart, not um, something else. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. You were dead and we buried you. So that's the representation when you're baptizing someone. They are burying their old self and coming up as a new creation, someone who has been sealed to the Holy Spirit. 
by um, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. You were raised with Christ through him in faith. This is that word. We're going to return to this word a lot. Pistis, 4102 in the Greek uh, concordance, if you will. And uh, this word pistis is persuaded to such a point that you're, nothing would persuade you otherwise. That's faith. Hope is in which you hope for something, you long for something, you yearn for something, but it hasn't been revealed to you in such a way that you have no doubt in your mind. Some people like to say, and I, I haven't mentioned this because I don't always think it's the fairest assumption to say this, but some people compare faith to a title deed, meaning God gave you a title deed, an inheritance. So this is yours. You are so sure of it because God gave it to you. So this faith brought you up from death in the powerful working of who? God. God completed this powerful work. Who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead, this is the same word in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, dead in Greek, nekros, which literally means lifeless, without breath, completely, utterly dead. And you, this is verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's not talking about the circumcision the doctor does when you're born. This is talking about the circumcision of who you are. Christ circumcises you in the new covenant in a new way by sealing you to the Holy Spirit. So you were dead, lifeless, without breath, in your trespasses. If you sin, you are dead. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. All of them. Wiped clean. When we're circumcised by Christ, when we're sealed to the Holy Spirit, that is the new life. And the importance of understanding who you were to who you are now is vitally important to the Christian walk. If you do not understand who you were and who you are now, you need to understand that. Who you were was dead as dead can be in sin and in trespass. Who you are now is made alive for Christ. For what? We talked about it last week. For piety, for holiness, for godliness, for pursuit of him, because he made you new. You're not a better version of your old self, because if you were, you'd still be dead. There'd be no point in that. You were dead. I'm not trying to beautify the dead. I'm not trying to make you look pretty on your deathbed. That's not what God does. He comes into the dead, he breathes life into you, and now you're brought up from death to life. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Amen. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling. This word canceling in the Greek literally means to obliterate. Oh, gosh. So when you say a canceling your sins, it's he obliterated them. Oh, yeah. He obliterated your past. He obliterated your dead sinful nature. Um, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. Before Christ, there was a legal demand on your life. And you know what it is? Death and eternity in hell. That's the legal demand upon your life before Christ. I've referenced this quote before and I'll reference again. Paul Washer said, If I love children, I must hate abortion. If God, if God is love, then he must hate what is unholy. Or if God is holy, he must hate which is unholy. 
It's the same principle. He canceled, obliterated the record of debt that stood against us with legal demand. The legal demand upon your life in death, in trespass, is hell and eternity there. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That legal demand for your life was nailed to the cross. What a beautiful picture. And so when we read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that's my cross reference for you a little deeper, is you were dead. You were dead. With demand upon your life, a legal demand upon your life to go to hell for eternity. But Christ took that price he took that title, that legal demand upon your life and nailed it to the cross and said, you are new. That's why Paul is so, so strong in his language. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. He who walks according to the flesh is of the flesh, but he who walks according to the spirit is of the spirit. 1 John chapter 1, if you say that you're in... You're in the light, but you walk in darkness. You're a liar. There is no darkness in light. God is perfect light. You're either of the light or you're of darkness. That's the language that Paul gives us, is either you're in or you're out. You can't be split up. You can't be a zombie. Okay, kids? You're either in, you're either alive, you're either in the light of the Spirit, or you're dead. You're of your own nature, your own sinful desires. You're either life or you're death. So what we see in the first verse alone is you were dead. What, before I get into the rest of this, you know, I took a long time for just, and you were dead. <laughs> I'm telling you guys, this, this stuff, I mean, that's why I say you'd rather understand 10 verses with excellence than 10 chapters with not any excellence. So true. <laughs> one through ten. We're going to try to power through this because this is one sentence once again in Greek. In Paul's original language, this is one sentence. Or original written language, I should say. So verses one through three, you see the depravity of man, the hopelessness and helplessness of man apart from Jesus Christ. One through three. Four through ten, you see the hope in God through Christ. So 1 through 3 is about the helplessness and hopelessness of you in yourself, of man. 4 through 10 is the exclamations of joy of God gives you hope because you can be made new. Did you know the quote or the saying, God helps those who help themselves, was introduced by pagans in the early church. Because Paul's language is, God helps those who know they're wicked and helpless in despair. Yeah. That was actually introduced by pagans. Pagan philosophers introduced that thought to Christian philosophers. The theme is, God helps the helpless. I'm not going to get into that. Um, my next comment on monergism and synergism. But if you were in Sunday school, you will know kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, but God helps the helpless. I'll, brief, I'll briefly mention it. Monergism is a belief that... Syner so I'll start with synergism because that might be easier to understand. Synergy is when people come together and it creates energy. It creates this positive, this, this role, this move, this power, synergy. 
Synergism is the belief that we're one or two, well, more than one person, two people at a minimum come together and create something. So there's a synergistic gospel which teaches God came to you and you came to God and that created salvation. And then there's monergistic, which would be what Augustine taught um, early church, one of the better theologians and philosophers in early church history. And he taught um, that salvation is monergistic, which means one. Monergistic being God saved you because you were dead. Synergistic means I was alive enough to choose this. And so it's not that important to get into. Um, but sometimes I think the language is you were mostly dead. But the scriptures always say you were dead. I think it's un easy to understand. You're either in or you're out. Um, and this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, finishing this verse. In, this word in the Greek language is closer to the idea of because of. So you were dead in because of, because of sin and trespasses. Every single person sins. Every single person trespasses. You were dead in that trespass because of that sin. This is from um, C.H. Spurgeon. I put a quote in here. Those who think lightly of sin think lightly of Christ. He forgave all of us. So that means I just surely just want to use Christ's blood that he spilled for me and just smear it all over my life every single day. Yes, but no. Yes, we cling to the blood of Christ, but no, we don't abuse it and misuse it and choose it to use it as a license to continue in sin. You're intentionally nailing Christ to the cross every single day because you want to sin? That's the language Paul is writing about. That's the language John is writing about in 1 John chapter 1. It says, if you continue in sin freely, willfully, upon your own desire, you're not saved. Are you kidding me? If you have a genuine, true understanding of the divine truth of Jesus Christ, you wouldn't want to continue in sin. No. Absolutely. So when Paul writes, they were of us, but they weren't actually or they were among us, but they weren't actually of us. That's the language. Those are those people that they, they don't think sin is a big a deal. The reality is Christ's blood covers our sin through and through. Sin compared to the blood of Christ is nothing. That's true. That's a partial truth. So when people go the step further and say, it doesn't matter how much I sin, tomorrow's sins are already paid for, it's fine, it's good, it's dandy, that's a partial truth. That's partially true. But the reality is those with a revelation of Christ, a genuine, true, saving revelation of faith in Christ which saves, those people won't abuse the blood or misuse the blood of Christ. So before Christ, before he saved us, before we were, when we were dead, we are blind to the glory of Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit because dead men don't see and dead men don't hear. Or talk. Or talk. <laughs> they don't do any of that and so we were blind to the glory of Jesus Christ so when you tell someone about the glory of Jesus Christ and they don't get it, it's because they're dead when you tell them about the gospel message and they don't hear it it's because they're deaf that's why I told you guys I can genuinely go to the prayer closet and pray God please open their ears, open their eyes to see because they're dead 
They're spiritually dead. They're dead in sin. They're dead in trespass. So that's not to negate and say we don't preach the gospel. That's to say we need God to do something in their lives before it will ever be received. Because if I go preach at a wall, what's it going to do? Nothing. If I go preach at a graveyard, what's going to happen unless by an act of God? Nothing. So first, God must act, and he will act um, often to those who are faithful in the gospel. In which, verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. I want to point out three enemies in these next couple verses. The world, the course of the world. That's enemy number one to your Christian walk. The course of this world. Their behavior, this is uh, a quote by O'Brien. Peter O'Brien, I believe is his first name. Their behavior has been determined by the powerful influence of society's attitudes, habits, and preferences. So when you allow your behavior to be determined by society, their attitudes, their habits, their preferences, which are alien to God. Gospel culture, kingdom culture, Christ-like mindedness is not of the world. There is grace, but let us not abuse it. They were in a cultural bondage embracing the values and expressing the vices of their society. Right now, if you are not aware, our culture is becoming even more so uh, at enmity with the church. The pro-choice agenda is anti-biblical. The LGBTQ agenda is anti-biblical. There are other things, numerous things, that are anti-biblical. And so when we look at this, when it says their behavior has been determined by the powerful influence of society's attitudes, habits, and preferences, that's that progressive Christianity. If you're a Christian who agrees with these agendas by the world, that's what we're talking about right here. You're, you, you, as a person, you should be influenced by the Word of God. The Word of God should be your uh, worldview. That's why we often talk about raising kids with a biblical worldview. We don't shelter them from the world. We give them a biblical worldview. So they look at the world through the lens of the Bible. Because if they don't look at it through the lens of the Bible, they'll start looking at it in the lens of the, the people, the world, the society. And that's what we're talking about right here in verse 2, in which you once walked a co- following the course of this world. There are certain courses of this world that are more biblical-friendly, more Christian-friendly, and there are times that they're not. China, Russia, we talk about that in Sunday school. Those are not very Christian-friendly. Africa, pretty Christian-friendly. Australia, probably pretty Christian-friendly. America, for the most part, has been pretty Christian-friendly. But that's still not a biblical worldview. It's a closer-to-what-we-believe worldview. So understanding enemy number one is the world, the culture in which we are a part of. My wife doesn't want me to call people pagans, which I understand. But can I at least call the liberal agenda the pagan agenda? Because that's what I feel like it is. Following the God of this culture, that's my insert here, following the prince of the power of the air, who is the God of the culture? It's Satan, the prince of the power and the air. Enemy number two is Satan and the demonic realm. Enemy number one, the world, the culture around us. Enemy number two, Satan, his dominion and his spiritual realm. 
The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? The death, the world, the people that don't know Christ. Note here, this prince of the power of the air is not the word dunamis. I just wanted to note that for you guys. Dunamis is always of God. The power of the air does not have the same power as God has. It is an allotted, allowed power that has nothing in regard to God's power. God's power allows and permits Satan's power, but it's not yin and yang. I think that's something I misunderstood as a kid, because I thought God versus Satan. No, God is all-powerful. He triumphs every time. He knows beginning and end. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. I want to read this briefly. We know that everyone who has been born, they're already dead, of God, <laughs> does not keep on sinning. So when you're born, it's not referencing your birth at zero, because that's death. We know we are born into death. So when it says we know that everyone who has been born of God, that's your rebirth, that's your salvation, that's that baptism, that's an internal baptism in which you're sealed to the Spirit. Once that happens... Once Christ baptizes you and seals you to the Holy Spirit, it says, anyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Does that mean sin comes? Sure. But what's your posture towards sin? Do you view it as a vile and wish to repent each and every time it comes up in your life? Not trying to renew your salvation, but trying to Restore your fellowship, your communion with God the Father. Or do you keep on sinning? Because if you keep on sinning and living according to your way and your wishes and your wills, then you're not born of God. You're not. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Keep that in mind. If you keep from sinning, the evil one cannot touch you. Oftentimes, sin is what is allowing the enemy into our life. And it's very easy to say, well, we all sin. There are some sins that open the door wider than others. Okay? That's just speaking practically. Uh, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Once again, these are the sons of disobedience. It's the evil one who owns the world. And we know that the Son of God has come, and... Christ has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I'm going to continue in Ephesians. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So the world, the culture, the society is our enemy number one. The enemy number two is Satan who has dominion over those. He has the sons of disobedience and guess what? The third enemy, we once lived in the passions of our flesh. That culture, that world, Satan, the powers of the prince, the prince of the power of the air, the sons of disobedience, that is what we were. That was our flesh. And just because our spirit's been made new doesn't mean our flesh isn't still trying to fight us on it a little. So enemy number three is your flesh. And I think oftentimes, we talk about this at our, our Bible study we have on Saturdays, it was the Proverbs chapter 1. If you guys aren't coming tonight, you're missing out. Uh, Sydney came yesterday, and she 
she said, she's like, wow, this is way better than the young adult one. She's like, more people talk than in the young adult one. And I said, well, we got adults here. We got Nitra and Jarrell, and they like to talk a little. Jarrell sometimes. <laughs> but no, it's good. It's, we're having a lot of fun going through Proverbs together. I was extremely blessed by yesterday's Bible study. And uh, we talked about how wisdom in chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about how wisdom calls aloud in the streets, beckoning for you to listen, beckoning for you to hear her. Please take my advice, take my counsel, be with me, Lady Wisdom. And then when you, in your folly, walk into ruin, wisdom mocks you. And we were talking about how sometimes we fall into folly and trial and we have issues come up in our lives and we immediately blame the demon. But sometimes it's because we weren't wise and we avoided wisdom and we avoided counsel. That was your flesh who walked you in to that situation because you avoided wisdom and sound counsel. The flesh is a pesky enemy. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're children. What we were was children of wrath. Not adults of wrath. No, we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Three enemies. Um, I'm going to skip a couple slides for sake of time. This, uh, the important thing to note about what is happening here in this, in this passage is the first three verses are awfully pessimistic about your nature and the world and the prince of the power of the air. It's pessimistic. It's, doubt, it's depravity. It's depravity is what it is. Um, and when we focus on that, and I want to read this quote um, by Sam Storms, we must never lose sight of either of these truths. And so the, the second truth being the optimism of God in Christ. So you see this language of pessimism about the depravity of man and the world and Satan in which he has dominion over, and then the optimism, which we haven't gotten to yet, of God and Christ and what he has done for us to those who believe. So you have a compare and contrast, which is very common in Pauline writing. He says this to this, this or this. And so you have this, this despair or faith, pessimism or optimism. Right? It's a vivid, vivid contrast. So this is the quote. We must never lose sight of either of these truths. The pessimism of our depraved, natural, dead state that we used to be part of. And the optimism of who God is and what Christ has accomplished for us. If we lose sight of either of these, if we neglect God's saving grace and become obsessed with the depravity of the human soul, we will fall into despair and uh, cynicism become a cynic. So when you focus only on the depravity, it's very easy to be down and think lowly of yourself and hate yourself and think about the depravity and be a cynic and be a critic. If we focus on grace, this is more common today, if we focus on grace and forget the condition from which we have been, from where we came and are being delivered, we stand in danger of um, naive. I'm trying to think of a better word to say instead of the word that is in the quote. Um, Ignorance and presumption. I'll say that. We're naive and presumptuous. 
Because if we only focus on the grace and not focus on what we were and what God has done for us, then we begin to get naive. And that's that anti-intellectualism sometimes that we see in today's culture is people choose not to be intellectual because it's just about God's grace and God's love and they forget about his holiness. We must remember both. Um, skip this. Um, verse 4. But God, pause. Verse 1, you were dead. And now we see this beautiful contrast to the comparison. Compare and contrast, verse 4, but God. Josiah, you were dead, but God. You were dead, blah, 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 but God. It's an awakening. It's being brought to new life. But God, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. His love surpasses all love. It surpasses even our mental understanding, our mental capacity. God is bigger. His love is better. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, reminder, you were dead in those trespasses, he made us alive. Who? He made us alive together with Christ by grace, which is a charity, a grace, a kindness, undeserved, unwarranted. I love um, R.C. Sproul, and, and, and plenty of theologians say this, but I love this. And they're like, well, why would a good God let people go to hell? <laughs> they sin themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Vernon knows. <laughs> Mercy and grace, by their very definition, mean they're not fair. It's unwarranted. If every single police officer provided grace to every single person, no one would get a ticket ever. <laughs> Some of you praying, saying, God, let these police officers have the heart of you. <laughs> the reality is grace and mercy are undeserved. They're not fair. So the reality is what is fair? Justice. Justice is fair. All of us deserve justice. And what does that mean? All of us deserve hell. That's right. All of us spend. All of us broke the law. All of us fall short. The old covenant is there to remind us how we are imperfect. How far we fall short of the glory of God. So don't come to me and say it's not fair. Fair would be we all go to hell. I don't want fair. I want mercy. And by mercy's very definition, that means some of us get to go. If all of us want to go, that, that, would, that would be injustice. Nobody on earth gets God's injustice, for God is just. He is holy. He is just. Nobody gets to say, I went to hell based on God's injustice. You went to hell based on God's justice. And you get to go to heaven based on his mercy. So we're going to try to give everyone we can the mercy of God. And I love that quote by Spurgeon. I'll probably reference it often. If they're going to go to hell, let it be with us dragging at their legs. Let it be over our bodies. Let us be yanking them and, and praying and pleading with them, don't go to hell. Yes, amen. Yes. Amen. That's why 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim. That's why we have beautiful feet. The gospel message should permeate our very being. It should be within us, a part of us. It should be a part of our language. That's why, you know, my wife and I had a discussion about cursing about a year ago. <laughs> She's like, ah, she quoted, you know, the, the same passage everyone quotes. Not let no filthy speech come from your mouth. I said, you know, that's, that's not actually about the word, though. It's not about the words. It's about your heart behind the words. I'm going to be honest. The Jesus love you gospel, that's filthy language. Everyone know Christians say Jesus loves you. Give the complete counsel of the gospel. Jeff Durbin was a pastor of Apologia Church in Arizona, Tempe, Arizona. Um, I, shared with the, I shared with the elders part of his sermon in which he curses. Was that sermon filthy talk? I don't think so. I don't think so. He used harsh language to draw the attention to his message. Now, I'm not saying you guys can go curse, because I doubt any of you could curse without sinning, including myself. I think it's a very specific, special situation. So clean up that potty mouth. All the teenagers are like, yeah, license to sin. Until you're a pastor of a thriving church and submit that sermon outline to the other elders and they permit for you to curse, no. <laughs> we're, almost, we're getting there. We're getting there. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places of Christ. Jesus. We're not sitting on Christ's throne. I want you to understand that. But we're sitting next to him. I don't have power, but my dad does. Okay? So that in the coming ages, this is Paul writing, of the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What did he do? God made us alive. He made us alive. But why did he do it? Peter O'Brien says, Making us alive in Christ and setting us free from the guilt and bondage of spiritual death, Hebrews 10, cross-reference for you, was only a part of the purpose of God. The ultimate motivation of God's heart for saving lost souls was so that they might become, throughout all of eternity, trophies on display for all to see the magnificent, 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 Magnificence, I said it right the first time, and the surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness in Christ. Charity, agape love, undeserved favor, undeserved love, unconditional love. Unconditional. We, we say this word unconditional, all the, uh, unconditional love all the time, but then we condition it. Well, God loves me because I go to church and I tithe. That's not what unconditional love means. God loves me because I, I preach the gospel and I, I have beautiful feet. And No, that's not, it's unconditional. You may have a better communion and fellowship with him than some other people that are, that are caught up in some sinful ways at the moment. But unconditional love, by its very name, is unconditional. So how did he turn something that was dead to life 
for his own majestic glory, how? For by grace, which is cheris in Greek, you have been saved through faith. For by grace, this is the five solas, this is part of it. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This word saved, and I mentioned it in Sunday school, is the same word from last week's sermon, to be made well, sozo. This time they translate it right. What if this passage, or this translation said, for by grace you have been made well through faith? It's kind of the same thing, but we want to hear that word saved. So when I talk about the ten lepers and the one who returned, and the nine that were healed but they didn't return, he said, your faith has made you well. Pistis, your faith, your pistis has been sozo, saved. It has saved you. So how? By the grace of God, you have been saved. Made well, sozo, through faith, pistis. Persuaded to a point you will never be persuaded against it. I told the teenagers all the time, and this is before I knew the language for it, but I used to tell the teenagers all the time, if you're sitting in in, in Bible study as a teenager and you think, well, maybe one day I could fall away and, and not think God is real, you're not saved. Faith, by its definition, means you are uncon- you could not be convinced. You could never convince me there isn't heaven. You could never convince me there isn't a God who loves me. You could never convince me that Jesus Christ didn't die to pay for my sin. But if I was able to be convinced otherwise then I wasn't actually saved because the faith I had was more just a hope. It wasn't faith. Faith is persuaded to trust, not just trying to trust. And this is not of your own doing. Pause. We're almost there, I promise. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. This is for the perfect goodwill of the Father. It is a gift of God. I quote this scripture a lot. Not a result of works that no one may boast. You cannot boast in the fact that you're saved because you were dead. Dead men don't see. Dead men don't hear. You don't see the glory of God. You don't hear the gospel message unless God does something in you. It's a gift. Grace. So when I say by grace, through faith in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's what we're talking about. That's the saving faith. It's not a result of works that no man may boast. Nothing you did earned your salvation. You were dead. That's why this, this heresy that Pelagius taught of Pelagianism I'm trying to use this word so you guys will eventually know it. If you want to, just, just type in Pelagianism. It's got a G, Pelagianism, and study it on the side. It's this idea that you can reach divinity, holiness, a worthy enough level without the grace of God. That we as humans are not tainted enough to a place of damnation, but that we can generally achieve our own righteousness. That's the opposite of what I see in Scripture. That's why I lean toward Augustine and his teachings. (laughs) Two sides, and they battled it out. Uh, For we, verse 10, this is the last verse, for we are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? Not our own, his workmanship. When you don't get into the Word, when you don't get into the prayer closet, when you don't let God convict you and refine you, you're no longer his workmanship. 
you want to be used for his glory? Creative in Christ Jesus for good works. Last week, 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, the, that, the, last work of the, or the last verse of the chapter we read, it said, complete and equipped for every good work. You'll hear that language a lot. That's why people believe in the Latin saying, which essentially said, by faith alone, which isn't alone. And I agree with that. I, I do believe that. So essentially it's saying, if you have genuine faith, you will produce fruit. And how will we know if they don't have genuine faith? By their fruit. So it says here, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. We think we're created just to be lovey-dovey. Love is part of it, absolutely, faith and love. But we're created for good works. What's the best work? I think the greatest work God ever did was send his son to die on the cross to adopt us in, us carnal, dead creatures. And now, the, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle, I want you to understand this. Think about your life. The greatest miracle was he saved you. Yeah. Amen. You don't need another miracle in your life if that's the only miracle you got. If you pray... For, for cancer and the cancer doesn't leave and you lose your faith, what was the greater miracle? The greater miracle was your salvation. That's faith. And that's why I talk about this deeper, deeper faith. In, in early January, I talked about this. Because if you have faith for a healing, great, that's a good faith. If you have faith for a sign and a wonder, great, that's a good faith. But a better faith is a faith that doesn't get the wonder, that doesn't get the healing, that doesn't get the miracle. <clears throat> A faith that is tried and tested, and yet you still trust in a good God. Daniel, but even if not, he is still God. It's hard. It's a tested faith. It's a pure faith. A deeper faith is being able to, to, to go to the place in which your daughter sank at sea and be able to write, it is well, it is well with me. So when someone tells me that I don't have good enough faith, and I'll just be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a name in here. When someone tells me I don't have good enough faith because I don't have faith that Trump's going to get into office, I say that's a shallow faith. My faith is even if I have a gun to my head and I die, God is still good. Amen. That is a deeper faith. So don't tell me I'm not the remnant. Don't tell me I'm not a part of this church because my faith isn't strong enough for a presidential candidate. My faith is in God that he is good even in the midst of persecution. Yes, amen. I hope Trump somehow gets in. March 7th. We've got some dates coming up that people have prophesied about. Amen. And I'm hoping for that. It'll be, but not necessarily on those dates. I'm just saying, my faith, my faith is even if the worst situation. And I, I talked about this last year, you guys, with Luke and the NICU. And through all the trials and all the struggles of what happened in the pregnancy and the emotional, it felt like abuse that we went through. Last, it was a hard year, okay? 2019, 2020 completely changed me. Completely changed my wife and I. 
<laughs> when we pray every day for a full-term baby and a full-term baby doesn't come, it's very easy to get mad at God. Very easy to be like, why are you doing this to me? What did I do? Faith isn't that Luke came two months prematurely and I didn't have faith that he'd come for nine months. It's saying God is still good even though this is terrible. Faith, once again, is tested when a man we're all close to, many of us were close to, my uncle, when he dies. Very young. Younger than many people in this room. He dies from COVID-19. And yet being able to still get up and say, God is still good. That's faith. That's a deeper faith. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't serve God because I'm trying to earn my way into heaven. I don't do good works because I'm trying to build up a house in heaven. If that's what's happening, cool. But that's not why I do it. I do it because I'm madly in love with my father. I do it because he first loved me. And so I, in return, will love him. This isn't a works-based religion, folks. This is a God-save-me religion. This is a Christ-paid-it-all-for-me religion. And so now I will honor the commandments in which he left for me. I will walk according to his purpose, his will. In closing, faith and grace in this language are both feminine, which means when they're tied together by masculine or feminine um, adage, you have to link them together. So if faith and grace, if faith was feminine in the language of Greek, and, ma- and grace was masculine, or vice versa, then you, you could separate them and not put them together. But because faith and grace are both given a feminine adage, meaning we have to link these two together. So as much as grace is a gift, we must include that faith is also a gift. The type of faith that trusts God in the midst of persecution is not of our own nature. The type of faith that can lose all of their family, all of their children, all of their, everything they have. That author of It Is Well, I just think about him all the time because I just can't, I can't even imagine. I pray to God every day, like, I can't imagine losing everything and, 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 and going over the place in which your daughters died at sea and saying when billows of water or billows of the sea come crashing upon me, I will still be able to sing, it is well, it is well with me. How on earth can someone say that? Because they've been persuaded, and it's a gift. God gave them that ability to be able to trust him for that. Um, even thinking about Abraham and Isaac, I mean, just, come on, that's, that's not normal people's stuff right there. Um, Augustine said, and this is one of my favorite quotes I came across this past week. I, I look at a lot of uh, theologians and, and things they've taught and said, um, since, you are slave, since you are a slave of sin, why are you boasting of your free will? People ask, what about free will? It doesn't matter. It appears we have free will. It seems we have our own unction. I could throw my phone right now if I wanted. It seems like I have free will. That doesn't matter. The better question is, what are you going to do with assumed free will? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Augustine said, since you're a slave to sin, why are you boasting in your free will? 
Because your free will will just take you to sin. We must yield ourselves to God. We must continually, every single day, yield ourselves to God. Without faith, this faith, peace, peace, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because you're a dead man doing works for nothing. You can't please God unless for God. So in conclusion, I really am done. I'm closing my PowerPoint. <laughs> Ephesians is beautiful because it reminds me of who I was and who I am now. Not by my own strength, but because of Christ. Not because of what I did or what I do, but because he is good and he is God and he is loving and he is kind and he is charity. So now, because of that, I want to be equipped for every good work. I'm not trying to work my way to heaven. I'm trying to work to please my Father whom I love. Yes, amen. Because he first loved me. All right, before I cry, I'm going to close in prayer. <laughs> I got emotional today. and I, I can't talk about 2020 too much without getting a little emotional. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity once again to freely gather and and preach the word and, and be in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 10 God I just I know that you're doing a mighty work Father in America not just not just our country but the church in America God I know that there are people who are, who are rising up and saying God is enough if nothing else happens if nothing else changes if a miracle doesn't come God is enough and that is the posture of my heart, Father. And I pray it be the posture of our church's heart is that we say God is enough for us. No matter anything that comes our way, God is enough. And so we have beautiful feet, God, because we want to tell everyone about this wonderful, wonderful God in whom we've encountered so, Father, I thank you. I glorify you. Have your way in my life. I'm a willing vessel. Craft me to equip any work you would have me do, whether high or low. I want to do what you want me to do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As always, thanks for checking us out. We hope to see you next week. God bless.